Rogue Radio. Now available on Mixcloud at mixcloud.com forward slash rogue country. Keep it rogue. Hey guys, obviously go listen to Rogue Radio and check out Rogue Country. Their Christmas special came out just before Christmas. It's fucking brilliant, as are all their episodes. So go check them out on mixcloud.com forward slash rogue country. Go check them out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rogue Country. And find some of your favorite music today because I've found so many great artists through Rogue Country that I just, you know, they're on my rotation constantly now on playlists. I buy the merch. I'm lucky enough to call some of them friends now. And it's, you know, it's just an amazing network of musicians and fans just coming together to share music that's outside the mainstream. So if you like this podcast and you like my music, you'll fucking love Rogue Country. As always, we are brought to you by my debut album, The Next Life. I'm really fucking proud of this record. I know I've gone on about it a fair bit, but, you know, it's my fucking record. It's what I've spent two years making. It's what I spent longer writing. And I'm just so happy with the reception it's had. And you can pick up a copy on white gatefold vinyl if you like. You can get one in CD. You can go digital. However you like to get it, we've got the formats. And if you go to my Bandcamp and use the discount code CHESTER, you'll get 15% off your order. So that's Mike333West at Bandcamp and use the discount code CHESTER. And you'll be able to get 15% off your order and get that new record in your life. It's The discount code's Chester because on December 18th, um, I got to do a gig. It was my final gig of the year and it was like my maybe 10th gig of the year as well. And it was opening for Tony Wright in the live rooms in Chester. And it was really weird, man, because, you know, obviously COVID's out there and everything. And it's all socially distant shows. This was the live room's first show back after obviously being in lockdown and having to deal with all the government restrictions. And the staff at the live rooms just fucking killed it. I got my own dressing room. I got the little temperature check thing. And they taped off loads of stuff. So you had certain routes to go. They wiped everything down. I obviously took my own microphone and leads and cables and shit. And it was just an amazing night. That was, you know, it was a good way to end the year. And I don't know if... I hadn't have done that show how I'd be feeling right about now because I've gone from doing like hundreds of shows a year for the last three or four years to I did the tour with Amigo the Devil at the beginning of the year. I did one gig in March and I had an EU tour booked in April which obviously went to shit with Uncle Wormwood and um, after that it was just like what the fuck can you do? So I got to do a gig with Tony right in October thanks to the Salty Dog in North which invited me up. And then the live rooms invited me to this. And I love the live rooms. It's a local venue to me. It's like half an hour away down the motorway. And yeah, it was a really weird gig. And it's also shown how important live shows are still. Because as much as I do online stuff, as much as I do the podcast, as much as I try to reach folks, the most interaction and engagement I've had in months was from that live show. All the likes on my Facebook went up, all the streaming, all the merch sales. And word of mouth is still the biggest thing, guys. So if you like this podcast, if you like The Next Life, if you like my music, please, please, please tell someone about it. You only need to tell one person and that will make a difference. If you've not heard The Next Life, I'm going to drop in a teaser now.
And I really hope you dig it again. Go check out. It's on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on Amazon. It's all streaming. And if you want to make a difference to myself and actually contribute, go to Bandcamp and you can pick up a record. And if you use the discount code Chester, C-H-E-S-T-E-R, you'll get a discount as well. So thank you so much. Today's guest, I'm so excited I got to talk to. I was on her show Adobe and Teardrops a while back as part of a Kickstarter reward for her Rainbow Rodeo magazine or a zine. And Rachel is this really interesting person who has a love of country music and a love of comic books. And she approaches them with such a insight and interest that it's really engaging. It's really, you always learn something from, whether it's one of her articles on no depression or, you know, one of her comic sites that she sometimes writes for or even just listen to her radio show. She's such an invaluable person to the country and comic scenes that I just needed to talk to her. So we get into a lot of comic book stuff, including like Batwoman and things. We get into a load of country and Americana stuff. And it's a really amazing chat to have someone who's worked with, you know, all these different like No Depression, The Boot, and loads of different online magazines and stuff, as well as their own successful podcast, Adobe and Teardrops. And I think this is a really important conversation to have, and I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, this is episode 21 of Into the Van with Mike West and Rachel Colston. Welcome to Into the Van with me, Mike West. Thanks so much again for joining Yeah, that, thanks for having me. I'm honored. <laughs> yeah, no, like I really want, obviously I was on your show a while back as part of like the air rainbow rodeo kickstarter thing but i remember mm-hmm. i can't remember who retweeted you or somehow you popped up on my twitter timeline and it was country music and comic books so <laughs> i was like i'm fucking in straight away like i had to like yeah follow you back after that to like see what was going on but with <laughs> country music and comic books what came first in terms of like what you loved more or what like came into your like awareness first I mean, I think it was definitely comic books. Like I, uh, I think we were reading Archie since we could read. I remember I have a very vivid memory in nursery school during like nap time. I couldn't sleep, and I guess we were like, I say we because I was a twin. <laughs> uh, so we must have been like early five at the mm. time, since we were still in nursery school. But we had already learned how to read. And most of our um, classmates had it. Mm. And uh, there's just like this Superman comic book, like graphic novel thing. Um, that was definitely too advanced for nursery school kids. But I remember like trying to read it. That, um, like, I think that's because I remember I started reading. I think the first comic mm. I read was a Spider-Man one. And that is the kind of thing I remember it being like advanced. But that's a thing a lot of gateways into reading was through comic books. Yeah, totally. And um Dad would bring home, there's a comic book store where in Midtown near where he worked. That's not there anymore, of course. And uh, so he would bring home, I think, or like on vacations, we'd stop in the gas station, pick up Archie and stuff like that. Mm. But I remember one time he came home with uh, the Superman comic where he's just like punching through a brick wall. And I've actually, every time I think about it, I go back and look up which issue it was because <laughs> I should just buy it. Mm. Um, 
it's a storyline where he like finally gets his powers back after being exposed to red kryptonite or something. Oh, well, <laughs> awesome. And like who are like your top like comics? Are you like Marvel, DC, or are you even like... Uh, just like DC all the way. Oh, I really? got into She-Hulk when that was still running. And, that, and now that it isn't, I, I don't know. I've never really been like that attached to those characters. I liked X-Men Evolution as a cartoon. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. Don't really like the drawing style in a lot of Marvel comics. I know these days there's like a lot of overlap. Mm. Um, I don't like superhero movies in general, oh, really? whether they're Marvel or DC, because I think they always just look kind of like bad. <laughs> I think uh, to me, the the best incarnation of any comic book ever was that 90s Batman cartoon. Oh, the, the animated Batman series. animated series, yeah. That um, it's just never going to get better than reading the actual, like that and reading the comic books and the rest of it is fine. Like I enjoy all the CW TV shows, but like. Mm. I was going to say, cause I yeah. read your article on the Batwoman trailer and like yes. thoughts on the new season. Cause like, I'm a huge Batwoman fan from when Greg Rucker wrote mm-hmm. his stuff. So I haven't seen the TV show cause I can't get it over here. But what was it about like Batwoman and stuff that you liked and what do you have hopes for the new season or anything of it? <laughs> well, so I think. I've also been a fan of Batwoman since she was introduced because at the time I was a senior in high school, redheaded twin who was coming out. Uh, Gotham City is basically New York City. So like, there's just like way too many things that Kate Kane and I had in common. <laughs> Although I would never join the military. Um, and so how could I not watch the TV series? Um, I was really disappointed when Ruby Rose was cast because like she's, not a good actor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't, you know, there was so much like social media feedback, shall we say on that. There wasn't really any point adding to it, but I feel like the person who should have been cast and who maybe hopefully will be cast since Kate will, will be recast for season three is um, Bex Taylor Kloss who played sin in arrow, hmm. but Bex is, um, Jewish or <laughs> I think that makes a big difference uh, in some ways like it shouldn't it shouldn't but like you can't make a big deal about Kate Kane being Jewish in the Batwoman TV series that's another thing we had in common there's just not that many redheaded Jews out there mm-hmm. so the redheaded Jewish twin thing was a big draw for me and Kate Kane um, but like Ruby Rose has like so many tattoos of crosses like all over her body <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it can't work. And then there are so many scenes where she has like this neck tattoo that they kept trying to cover with concealer. And like, you could still see it <laughs> if you're watching on HD. Um, I remember, I think the only thing I remember seeing Kate Kane in the comic, she had the star tattoo somewhere on her. Yeah. I mean, yeah. whatever, well, like yeah. two Jews, three opinions. Jews can have tattoos, but they're not going to have tattoos of crosses. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, so I think there's just like a lot of reasons that like she was just the wrong person for the role uh but then also like it sounds like there's a lot of tension on set and she got injured when she was um, filming the pilot really badly so you know it's funny i remember watching the series thinking like why is she slouching like a teenage boy but probably she was just Mm -hmm. on painkillers the whole time and her back hurt and then she was working i don't know 18 hour days or however long those production schedules are so I would understand if she, I understand why she was just like, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah, I remember being disappointed that Ruby Rose was cast when I first, just because I'm a fan of the character, obviously like 
you see kind of like yourself and it's like represented something that's been missing from comics i remember being like i don't really seen her and i think it was john wick too is it mm-hmm. and she was in a bit of orange and the new black i think when i'd seen a bit of yeah. that so it's fan casting i think is always an issue when it comes to series and things but i'm really interested in where batwoman's going with the new leading mm-hmm. stuff. so i'm looking forward to seeing that obviously like i'm a huge like jh williams fan who, like, yeah it's like a uh, few runs and stuff so i am i really want to watch it and i dropped out of all the cw shows because they're so hard to get over in the uk but with kind of like you mentioned representation in comics was that something that even back when you were a kid you kind of like noticed or you didn't feel represented in i don't think so i think um it's i started to as i got older and i think became more aware of myself like Mm. um I didn't really have like a favorite superhero. My sister wasn't really into Wonder Woman. I mean, I was just kind of equal opportunity. Mm. Um, I think even in the nineties and two thousands, the Batman comics were kind of a little grim. So uh, we both read a lot of Wonder Woman. Um, I decided I was going to get into Green Lantern and then Green Arrow because my favorite color was green, Mm. which I think is like why so many of those superheroes have like those color schemes. Um, And when I first started reading Green Green Lantern, that was a storyline written by Judd Winnick with Kyle Rayner as Green Lantern, where his friend Pedro gets uh, beat up for being gay. Mm. Um, And Judd Winnick... um, No, sorry. The friend isn't named Pedro. The friend's name is something else. But it was the first time there was like a gay character Mm. in a DC... A gay male character in a DC comic storyline i think because maggie uh what's her last name the police officer in mm. uh superman who then becomes the police commissioner in gotham uh hi <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh she her character was written as a lesbian like in the 1980s by john Byrne, so she was probably the first gay comic book character i think in either of the two big publishers really? maggie sawyer yeah. but um yeah, so anyway, so there's this whole storyline about, like, a queer person and their relationship with the world. And then as a middle school student, I, like, found myself really, like, drawn to that story without understanding why I was. Mm. Um, I think there are a lot of uh, queer people who can remember, like, growing up and, like, feeling like there was a time where they really strongly identified as an ally mm. <laughs> with uh, the cause, causes of queer and trans people. And then it turns out, actually, they were queer and trans themselves. <laughs> but only realized later no, um like yeah i think that's really important obviously like i'm a fucking straight white dude so like i can i've picked up comics and it's just like i'm like i'm a huge daredevil fan and like thor and captain yeah. america and stuff and i've never had to worry about not being represented because of you know who i am like that's what society leans to mm-hmm. and it's like i always hate these fucking debates when you know if um you know ironheart replaces iron man for a bit or falcon picks up like cap shield and stuff and it's like people start kicking off about these things and it's like why can't you just let someone else you know see themselves in these heroes and these storylines and you know the writers and artists aren't stupid they know they don't live in like these isolated little bubbles so they start trying to bring in you know these new ideas and new characters and stuff and it just makes it for a better experience like even people kicking off about like how wonder woman's represented or 
they aren't mm. like a fan of Batwoman because it's a girl and it's like, but you just let people have things that they fucking <laughs> like. And yeah, it doesn't take anything away from you. It, I mean, thing. yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's not like I ever felt like as a kid anything was like missing because yeah. that's just the water you grew up like swimming in. Yeah. Um, but then when you have that point of connection, that really does matter and it makes you feel great. And so why wouldn't you continue to chase that feeling? Yeah, that's the thing. It's like people are always, you know, fighting to the death, defending like Kal-El and Bruce Wayne and saying that they're their heroes. And it's like, well, why can't you let other people have their own fucking heroes and just like show how great comics can be? Because comics should be the most inclusive thing in the world because like comic culture since day one has been like the outsider thing. It's been shit on from the government, the comics code and all Mm -hmm. that. So you know that the people who are reading them feel like they don't fit in anyway. So if you can make more people feel welcome in that community, I've never understood why you wouldn't want to. I mean, I think that's just a microcosm of the whole world, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. for some reason, people feel like uh, they need to protect this turf or that there's scarcity when there really isn't. Mm. Um, but, you know, because of that scarcity, sure, like Batman, or excuse me, Batwoman and Green Arrow which both have shows on the CW, like have not had their own comic in years. Yeah. And so, yes, in the sense that like what's getting physically published. Yeah. There is scarcity there. Right. You know, why would the, why would DC and Marvel like spend money producing a book that isn't very popular when they could have like five Batman books out? Yeah. That's the unfortunate Um, thing about like the comic industry is it, it's the same thing with the music industry. It's like, the industry part normally comes first because like i've kind of given up on the big two like marvel and dc i can't remember the last current when i read of it because i remember i got they did the howling commandos but with monsters so i was like i'm mm-hmm. all over that so I bought <laughs> yeah. that, and that got cancelled after like six issues and then they kept rebooting and retconning and they've just announced today beta ray bills doing a solo run and i love like that character but i know that it's just gonna go for like six issues or something so I just don't want to get invested in it. <laughs> yeah, I have stopped paying attention to any of like the big universe shaping events. Um, I think the only DC series I still subscribe to is Wonder Woman at this really? point. Yeah. Um, and the most recent arc was supposed to be tied to the movie because it would have come out you know, over the yeah. summer. So the arc that started was about Maxwell Lord. And like, it's like, it's written by Mariko Tamaki and it's the first time I've seen Wonder Woman like be really funny, her mm. and G Willow Wilson. And it's sort of interesting that like the most successful writers have been like on that series. have also been like Greg Rucka mm. and then Gail Simone. Well, Gail Simone's run was actually pretty bad, but like <laughs> uh, the people who do it best have like humor and kind of magic as the focus and not like this angst about like fighting against the gods because or being a woman, like a man yeah. trying to write about a woman overcoming sex. I was like, well, it's nice that you tried. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, this one's been very enjoyable. But yeah, mostly I've been reading a lot of Boom Comics. Boom Comics? Yeah. That's oh, cool. the, or the publisher is called Boom. Yeah. I don't, Which ones? I mean, they've got those? a lot of British. Uh, I love Giant Days and anything that John Allison writes. Oh, cool. um, he's a British guy. Yeah. Oh, and uh, yeah. Lumberjanes, of course. Yeah, Boom Comics. I know some of their prints that they do, but nothing jumps to mind from what because it was like 
for me it was kind of like marvel dc then image and then it mm-hmm. was dynamite and boom and yeah. those ones so i've not kept up to date with boom i think did they do some public domain characters a while back like I maybe i know they're doing the firefly comic now i think their big money maker is lumberjeans mm. which is about uh, a magical feminist girl scout camp oh cool that is super queer and racially mm. inclusive and everything else that it, it's very charming oh cool um and noelle stevenson that was like her project before she in between um yeah. oh thank you <laughs> <laughs> that was their project in between um what's it called Nimona and uh she so yeah and then now it's going to be turned into a cartoon on hbo max so that's also exciting oh awesome and obviously you've yeah. like written your own comics and stuff did mm-hmm. you draw it as well no i wasn't confident <laughs> that i could draw it in a way that would make anyone actually want to read it so uh, Angela Boyle is the artist who I work with for my comic Artema. Oh, cool. And is that still ongoing? Because I saw it was up to like, a few issues from some of the interviews I was reading about Ovia a while back. But where is it up to at the moment? Uh, issue three came out, was printed in the spring mm. or, you know, February-ish or whatever. Uh, so obviously, it's. I think the best way to get it out to people is to like, sell it at conventions and mm. stuff so that hasn't happened this year um but i'm like halfway done with a draft of issue four like it's one of those problems where i'm sure you have this issue as a musician too where like it's in your head so it's all done and then you have to get it out of your head and that's boring yeah so you procrastinate on that part so <laughs> <laughs> so that's where i'm at oh, um, awesome and like what's the um like the premise of it or the like plots of it uh, so Artema is about a young woman who is exiled from her community, uh, which is under siege from the larger empire, hmm. uh, because she breaks their vow of pacifism and uses her uh, magical God-given abilities to just kind of become a berserker. So she gets kicked out. And then it's kind of about what happens after that. Uh, but another aspect of the comic is that it's told in a non-linear fashion um that was inspired by kim stanley robinson's the years of rice and salt Hmm. which is about what would happen if a third of europe if more than a third of europe had been wiped out by the black plague like how would the world uh be different today and so because the the book's thesis is that um China and India would be more ascendant and then a Buddhist worldview would kind of be more universal. I was just about uh, to say, I really yeah. want to read this because if one of the thirds was Britain, most yep. of the world would be even better than if, like, it is now. <laughs> it doesn't go quite that far. Like, yeah. It's interesting that it's like a lot of the things that happen, like World War One and World War Two, still happen. Mm. But um, the way that imperialism and colonialism look is very, very different yeah uh because china and india already have the resources so they don't really need to get things to extract things from other people but they do need power Mm. it actually i should reread it now that i'm like not in college anymore but the point of the book is that because it's told it's written as if this is what actually happened it's told with a sort of um the different idea of how history works so i wanted to do that with this story so in this story, the Komai, the, the tribe that Artema belongs to, believe that history um, 
echoes instead of like it goes from point A to point B. So what happens throughout the book is that there are flashbacks and then flash forwards um, to show how certain things can happen in a person's life over and over again. That's awesome. Like I'm going to have to read Ozma and I'm going to have to remember. <laughs> I can send them to you. Do it because like I've written yeah. two comics, but what is like your process behind from like scripting and stuff to like actualization, wow. like the actualization of it? Yeah, well, so it's interesting to work with a collaborator on that. I think if I was writing a comic that I was drawing myself, it would probably look a little different. Um, but in my head, it kind of plays out like a, a movie, mm. except for certain scenes where I have like a very specific idea of what I want the page layout to look like. So what I've been doing is I've been writing it like a script and then in the margins, uh, writing a page layout if something specific comes to mind. Um, so that's where I'm like in the middle of it. Cause I could like, again, it's all in my head and getting out to paper is going to be boring. Yeah. Um, and then what I'll do is I'll rewrite the script. <clears throat> I'll type it up on a computer. And then while I'm doing that, I'll make thumbnails for pages, send it off to Angela. And then she might have feedback for another round or two before she starts to draw it. Oh. Um, and the, so far, all three issues have been kickstarted on mm -hmm. Kickstarter. Um, but I think what I want to do for whenever we launch the next campaign is to have a couple of the, the first few pages done so people have a better sense of what it is that they're paying for. In the past, it's just kind of relied on people we know mm -hmm. uh, being nice and, and uh, contributing. Awesome. Like, because I wanted to talk about Kickstarter because that was how like you'd funded Rainbow Rojo. But so was Artima your first kind of exploration into Kickstarter? To get That's to right. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I also had sort of an in because I know um, one of my friends uh, works at Kickstarter oh. and started out working in the comics division. But there wasn't anything that she did that was different that she would have done differently yeah. from anyone else starting a campaign. She just like sent me a direct email with a couple of resources that Kickstarter had developed. And so uh, I think the biggest resource is like the spreadsheet that's pre uh, completed with some mm -hmm. formulas to help you get a sense of like, okay, well, this is how much I want to raise plus the 10% or whatever it is that Kickstarter takes plan out and guesstimate which rewards you're going to uh, make available, how much it's going to cost to actually make them and estimate how many people are actually going to, buy that like mm. pick that tier um and then you can get a sense of how viable your campaign is or if you need to kind of maybe offer different tiers mm. so that's what i've used uh for rainbow rodeo and for the kickstarter uh for artema oh, cool. seems to work so far yeah. i've mostly made over what i expected to make so that's awesome and with like the kickstarter of those two things like i have a friend tom who um, puts comics out over in the UK and he swears by Kickstarter because it helps him reach like a new audience as well. Have you found like people who weren't aware of like Adobe and Teardrops or your other work mm -hmm. like through Kickstarter finding Artema and Rainbow Rodeo? Not so much with Artema, uh, which has been interesting. That's mostly been people I know personally, but for Rainbow Rodeo, it was like, it's 20, we raised $2,200 there are a lot of people who like, I have no idea who they are. There are, I think over a hundred backers. I know or kind of have an idea of 
maybe like 30 of them and how they found out about it. But like the other people, I don't know. I know that uh, Country Queer, which is a website devoted to queer country music, mm-hmm. um, which I also write for, uh, had a little article. And I know that they have a pretty wide following. So I think that might have helped a bit. But um, yeah. I wish I could, I wish I knew. Yeah. <laughs> I wish the tools for Kickstarter are a little more sophisticated to know, like, but I also understand why it's kept private, where, like, yeah. I would want to know exactly how this one person, what did they click on to find this? Um, and then also, because Rainbow Rodeo was launched through their campaign, um, Signs of Change, which my friend spearheaded, which is awesome. Um, the idea was to highlight projects that had a social justice mission and so because of that um the article the campaign was featured on the front page for a couple of days oh awesome um with rodeo how did that initial project come out what was the initial thought behind it to kind of Mm -hmm. kickstart it before you kickstarted yeah i mean i've been thinking about it for a long time and trying to think of um a better way or a way to have like something that was very focused on queer country performers. This was before the country queer site mm. was even an Apple and Dale's guy's eye. <laughs> um, but then I procrastinated on it. I think it was because I had made the comic um, and I could see that even with like a very modest budget, I think our time of usually only costs about like $700, which is like not money I have on hand necessarily, mm. but for a comic book because it's black and white it's really not that much money um so because i saw that it was attainable Mm. like why not do something related to music writing but then also more selfishly uh i've been applying to various zine fests with different political (laughs) focuses and the comic is not enough to uh (laughs) to um to be accepted into those zine fests, but something like a, a zine about country, queer country music probably would be. Yeah. So there's both like the, the selfish motivation, but, but also I think like um, with everything being digital, with Spotify being the main way that most people interact with music, I just think it would be cool to have like a physical artifact, something that helps maintain like a network of different yeah. musicians. Um, because one of the tiers I had for the Kickstarter was that musicians could order 10 copies at cost. So for about a dollar each, and then they sell it and then they have a profit. Um, and that their fans learn about other musicians who are similar to them. And I'm certainly planning on having more issues than the first issue. So eventually those artists could also be featured in the zines and it would be organic from there because up until this point in the United States, a lot of the queer country community has just, been has just existed because specific musicians host uh, regular showcases in mm. different cities but uh that's only like new york and la there's a lot of other america <laughs> in between um so why not create the com- a community that way yeah. and then once uh, country queer began uh, that site is all volunteer run um they do sell t-shirts and things like that but uh until it's something that is financially viable enough to pay the writers, the writers are working on a volunteer basis. Mm. So another important goal to me for the zine was that people could get paid to write about queer country music. 
and um so cool yeah i mean what i'm really excited about is we made double uh the initial budget so i wrote everybody um who i thought would be interested and said hey i know that the the pay rate for the article is not that much but i could also pay you and give you copies of zines that you can figure out how to sell and then it would at that point it was competitive Mm. with writing something for a web publication but then with the fact that we raised double what i had planned uh everyone got paid like way more than they would have for writing for something like no depression or even rolling stone so that felt really great oh yeah so cool well done like yeah (laughs) obviously like i'm a fan of your writing and stuff because i remember it was for i think it was the boot when you did a brief history of queer country i remember reading that and obviously like unless like with it, without a zine or without someone kind of like showcasing these artists and that music you can't really find it unless you like just start digging on your own you find people like yourself to do it so to see this zine come to fruition to actually like succeed in such a great way is such like an amazing thing to show that like again it's about representation and knowing that the artists and the demand is there and no one's really been catering for them or acknowledging them in a meaningful way so i'm so fucking like happy to see this as like a real thing that's actually like coming to fruition because see i've read that article and you know admittedly i don't know that much about like queer country and the history of it but this is a great stepping stone to then learn more and like mm-hmm. discover artists and stuff, which is the most important thing is to discover like this great music. Yeah. I mean, I think like the internet is not forever. Um, and so I think having like a physical artifact mm. is really important. Um, and I think we've also seen that there are, there's a lot of big money trying to figure out how to like cash in on queer yeah. country music as well, because Apple radio just, uh, in the time that like I was working towards getting the zine out, I actually had meant to start fundraising for this like earlier in the year and then mm. COVID happened. So <laughs> there wasn't any point in trying, but I have like the receipts in terms of like the email <laughs> dates. I've been trying to like get this project off the ground since like early 2019, I think. Um, but Apple radio now has like a queer country radio show uh, called uh, country pride radio, something like that. Mm. Um, but to be honest, I really don't think that it's financially viable. Uh, and as much as I love that country queer exists, I don't think it's ever going to be viable enough for the writers to get paid. Mm. Um, I just don't think the money's there. But for something like a zine that's small scale, it's something that could be profitable in a way that it helps artists who sell the zine. Yeah. Because a $4 profit for something that's really easy to carry, that's, you know, who wouldn't want to sell that? Yeah. Um, the money isn't going back to me. I wanted to go towards like other people in the community. I'm including like a very small payment for myself in the budget to the Kickstarter. Like mm. I wrote some articles, so I paid myself 60 bucks. Um, I want the money to go to like people who are writing the articles. Um, but I don't know if it's going to be massively profitable the way that like Apple is expecting it to be. I think the audience is just small. And I think like, for talking about country music fans that doesn't add queer country music fans like queer people tend to make less money than straight people and people who live in rural areas tend to make less money than people who live in urban areas so mm. i don't think the money is there but it would be nice for everyone involved if i'm wrong yeah <laughs> that like that's the thing even it's the same with any creative thing like 
the kind of idea that the money isn't there is hanging over every single person who makes something in like the zine. I always kind of think of like Discord from like DC, like the punk movement. And we have a punk movement over here in the northwest of Wales, which has like zines and they still do really well from like fan to fan, artist to artist, physical things that like you can pass around and like they physically exist. And that word of mouth and connections just, it transcends, obviously you'd like to get paid, but it transcends like a monetary value to build Mm -hmm. a community that is just more interwoven with each other. And it's such a great idea and a great concept to do for these communities that obviously if the money is not there but if you just keep plowing at it like even in my own music and comics whatever i always if you can break even and just keep it kind of like feeding itself that's a victory in itself yeah yeah i mean i don't want to focus on the money as like yeah. the only benefit but i think just in terms of like especially with uh when you're working with artists other people. not being able to yeah support themselves on music yeah alone uh i thought this was an opportunity to uh have a rising tide that actually lifted all boats Mm. (laughs) you know like this is a project that can only benefit everybody who's involved with it um and i think that is sort of like how things should be yeah no that's awesome and like going on to your writing career and stuff so you've written for no depression and the booth and your own adobe and teardrops how did you get started in writing articles and writing kind of like critically i mean i think a lot of my projects been because i'm like annoyed about something and then i realize that (laughs) if i the only way to not be annoyed about it is to like do something um Mm. so i have been a big fan of a blog called nine bullets um which is still a semi-regular podcast and the blog had been running for a very long time Mm. um when i came across it in like 20 or 2000 eight-ish 2007 maybe there's this whole scene of like all these uh hardcore punk mostly guys who like from the midwest and the south who just kind of like chilled out and picked up acoustic guitars <laughs> in their 20s and 30s um so like jason isbell came out of that scene yeah uh, lucero is like the big name austin lucas uh two cal garage all those guys um this was before Americana was sort of considered a genre. Mm. Again, talking about where the money is and like what corporations get interested in something. <laughs> um, so I really loved that music. I found myself really drawn to it. And I found that I thought that the blog really did not have many women artists mm. to feature and uh, only, really only wrote about artists of color if they decided to write about a hip hop album. Um, just because that's where the scene for that music was. There wasn't really, uh, yeah. It's not that there wasn't space. I think it's just, I don't know how to explain it. That's just where it was at at the time. And a lot of those guys came from like the punk world. So they were, you know, of course, speaking out about being anti-racist and anti-sexist, whether or not their practices um, uh, reflected that. Yeah. But um, I think yeah. that's kind of like, an issue even like with like what I do with road country and stuff where it's like, we're all just white guys. So it's, we know what we know and we yeah. don't know what we don't know, but we have to try and make a conscious effort to find stuff we don't know. But realizing that takes a moment. Sometimes like, obviously you shouldn't have to be told by people to maybe look over the 
But sometimes yeah. it does take just someone being completely blunt and being like, have you thought about doing X or Y or even thinking about outside of yourself? And it's not from like a mean-spirited thing. It's just kind of like a naive ignorance, probably. Yeah, exactly. I think ignorance is the word there. Yeah. And, um, and that's changed too. But um, so there are some artists who I thought it would be really cool if they were featured on Nine Bullets. And like, I didn't know at the time, right? So I just email, I emailed Brian. I was like, hey, I think you'd really like these women. And I never heard back from him. And so I was like, what the hell? And of course, now I know that he got like hundreds of emails a day. And just because somebody says they're a fan and not a PR artist doesn't mean that that's the case. Mm. Uh, so I was like, well, if emailing him isn't going to like, make it happen what if i just started my own blog mm. so that's how i started adobe and teardrops um i reached out to another blogger named von quote who had a, a podcast when those were brand new called americana rock mix um and asked him for advice on how to get started and he very kindly just sent my information around to all of the record labels and like pr people he was in touch with um and then somebody I think Neville Elder, who still does music, but mostly does film now. He had like a sort of gothic um, vibe, which uh, like sort of like murder by death, kind of like Mm. creepy country music kind of thing. Um, I think he was the one who recommended that I start reposting my stuff from Adobe and Teardrops onto No Depression. Um, At the time, it had been a magazine and then the magazine folded because this was the 2000s. so somebody had bought the name of the magazine and just pretty much maintained it as a forum. And anyone who wanted to could post like reviews and long form articles and whatever the editor who was Kim Rural at the time or Rural, I think is how she pronounces it. She would then pick stuff that was really good and feature that on the front page. So it was really democratic. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> and so that is where I think like, um and that she really enjoyed my writing and it turns out she was also queer so i think as i started to write more about that angle she was Mm. really excited to see that um and put that on the front page um and then around the same time i think it was also neville who directed me to karen and the sorrows uh at the time they were doing a lot of kind of creepy country stuff too Mm. uh and karen put together the monthly queer country series in brooklyn and the brought artists from all over the country and even internationally together to just make country music Mm. um and from there there was an offshoot into the west coast that i think is also still ongoing um so it all just kind of happened around the same time really Mm. but karen's also connected to a lot of the same activist communities that i was a part of as a teacher there's like this Venn diagram of teachers and lesbians and Jews <laughs> and like Karen was at the middle of those <laughs> circles <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, so it was just kind of organic. And then uh, when the site, when no depression was bought again to be made into a nonprofit publication. So it's now mm. a quarterly journal by the Freshgrass uh, foundation, the new editor, Stacy uh, reached out to me and said that, I could still write for no depression and they'd even pay me. So like, that was exciting. <laughs> mm. um, yeah. yeah. And then through there, I just, from being on Twitter way too much, I got connected to uh, Lori Liebig, who at the time was the new editor in chief at wide open country. And that's where I started writing. I guess more professionally because no depression. They're like, yeah, write a record review. Cool. 
Um, but for wide open country, I had to write something and then make sure it was like SEO friendly mm. and like do all this backend stuff on WordPress myself. Um, and then all of us got fired oh. <laughs> like 2018. I think it was too political and too like liberal for the publisher's liking, really? but I've not actually received any confirmation on that. Um, so, and then a lot of us started writing for the boot um, and Angela Zimmer was more than happy to uh, have us aboard. And then the pandemic happened. So yeah. a lot of us uh, haven't been writing for them as much. Yeah, but with like writing articles and stuff, what, is your kind of process going into that with obviously because i remember you did an, the arlo mckinley review for no depression i think but then you did the one with phoebe hunt about building community the violinist mm -hmm. what's kind of your approach to articles are they written on spec from like something you find or is it you know no depression or whoever says we've got this idea of a article do you want to take it and run with it what's the process from that to then actually sit mm -hmm. down to write the thing well, usually what happens is uh, for an album review, I'll listen to something and I'll really like it and it would be cool if I got paid to write about it. So I just <laughs> pass the link. <laughs> it's that simple. Um, and if the artist is meets no depressions criteria, which means that they're like a nationally touring artist um, and the album hasn't come out yet, I'll mm. just send a link over to Stacy at No Depression. And if it's something that she thinks would be a good fit, then we just schedule a, a review and... For that, I listened to it a couple times. Um, hope if uh, the PR person or the artist includes any explanations of the songs or lyrics, I'll read through those while I listen. Um, and I'll just type notes of my impressions and then I'll go back and flesh that out and uh, while I'm listening to the album again in case anything else jumps out. Um, but for the longer form articles, that could be like an idea I have, like the history of queer country music mm. because Brandy Carlile made that. Uh, she made this comment that if she ever leaves me for the high woman was the first queer country song. It was sort of, it seemed like something because the, the author of that article reached out to me privately where it just wasn't like quoted. It wasn't misquoted, but it wasn't like contextualized correctly mm. in the article where she meant the first like mainstream queer country song. I don't know, because definitely like she had introduced that song as the first queer country song at like a lot of her concerts. So yeah. whatever Brandy. Sorry about the, the Madison Square Garden one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I got annoyed. So like I said, if I get annoyed about something, I'll, <laughs> I'll write about it. Um, so I just asked Ange if I could write and at that point, I don't. I had been writing, I think, articles for the boot. Um, if I could write like a quick timeline to sort of put this album that had so much press and hype around it into context. Um, so the Madison Square Garden story is that we got tickets uh, to the Brandy Carlisle's first show at Madison Square Garden, sold out. We were like the second row from the back, just like total mm. nosebleeds. Um, and what she introduced, if she ever leaves me, she's like okay, well, now I know it's not the first queer country song. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, when the album came out, The Boot had this edit an editorial that was just kind of like a, here's our general statement about the album. And then here's like all the articles we have, but like in response to the album. So that editorial 
she posted on her Instagram stories, but the article linked to my timeline. So I'd like mm. to think that she read it. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but <laughs> who knows if she did? Because the article itself was like, well, it's not the first queer country song. <laughs> so maybe that's, she didn't dig much deeper. Yeah. But like, she's friends with the Indigo Girls. So like, she, she couldn't not know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, I think it's a hard thing for like artists because it's like, you want to be truthful, but you also want to market things. And I think the lines get blurred and people start quoting wrong or ignoring parts of history just to try and have a soundbite. And I think that's the problem with the internet and what your zine and stuff kind of moves away from is getting rid of that kind of clickbait, which well done for, you know, having a whole thing to lead up to, you know, Madison Square Garden to be like, corrected if only you could have like run mm-hmm. quickly down to the stage and been like You're welcome <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm here for you brandy i don't know <laughs> she <laughs> you don't have to put this in if you don't want to but like she kind of just rubs me the wrong way as a person like that apparently that concert was her wedding anniversary to yeah. her wife who really hates being the center of attention and throughout the concert she made a point of saying that and then asking people to applaud for her wife in Madison Square Garden where she booked her concert for their anniversary. And like, it's funny, I've seen her perform a bunch of times even though I'm not like a huge fan of mm. her music. It's like if, like I went to Jazz Fest and then she was performing. So I went to go see her, like that kind of thing, yeah. you know? And uh, she does it every time. Like, what is that? <laughs> That's mean. Yeah, I am. Yeah. My girlfriend comes to most of my shows i know if i pointed it out even to like 20 to 50 people i'd get a dig in the arm on the way home so you just wouldn't yeah. do let alone at like madison square garden on their anniversary like that's something where i feel like you could say to your manager you know what i'm gonna be home with my wife and kids that night yeah so we'll see i'm i'm waiting for like this darker side of her to be exposed because i think it's there really I know that's evil of me to say, but like, she's got like a weird manic energy. And like, if whenever I see that in a, in a guy, something will inevitably come out. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, yeah. So. Yeah, no, I, I totally yeah. get what you mean. Well, I wish her the best. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I'm not going to be surprised when something comes out. No. But going from your articles and stuff and country mm-hmm. and comics, what was your first exposure to country music and what was kind mm-hmm. of instilled your love enough to start writing critically or like analytically of it yeah i think i don't know i grew up in new york city so there's no and you know my family is from new york city just like immigrants got off the boat didn't Mm. feel like going anywhere else um so it's not like it was something i grew up with i mean Mm. i grew up with the beatles and like a lot of the 60s folk music and stuff um for some reason one of my Hanukkah presents was a Walkman when, again, when I was like in kindergarten. So I was like five or six and I didn't know it was cool. Like what was the cool thing to listen to? How do I fit in with people? So I listened to like the contemporary rock station, mm. like every night before going to sleep to try to learn these songs that like nobody my age was listening to. And like, I'm sure a lot of it was like really inappropriate. <laughs> and then at, at some point the station switched formats to classic rock and I was like, oh, this isn't cool. But, you know, a couple of nights in, I heard John Mellencamp's um, Jack and Diane. And like, that was it. I had to keep listening until I heard that song again so I could find out who it was. 
Um, so I think really it wasn't so much country music as like Heartland Rock, mm-hmm. like Bruce Springsteen, yeah. like all those guys. And that's still like the music I feel like I um, still like the most, like R.L. McKinley and Two Cow Garage. Like that's all from that same kind of drinking water. Awesome. Um, and then I guess I kind of connected with the music more. Um, when I was in middle school, I fell deeply in love with this band called Cowboy Mouth that was from New Orleans, which is why I was at Jazz Fest. Um, and they have, it would be Americana now. And if um, they were still making new music, um, they're not really, they're mostly just see themselves as like a touring band mm. and like that's their main function. And then the CD, the recordings are just like a memento from the concert. Mm. But um, I think they would be called Americana now. But yeah, that was like music that had a lot of Southern influences because they're all from New Orleans, a lot of folk influences. Uh, was one of the songwriters, Paul, had tried to make it up in New York in the anti-folk scene, came back home. Uh, started, they started this band that they thought was only going to last like three months. And then, you know, like 15, it, the band itself is still going 30 years later, even if it doesn't have all the original members. Cool. Um, so I was always looking for more music like them. And then Yahoo Music, Yahoo had like a, a radio station thing that was kind of like Pandora before Pandora. It didn't work as well. <laughs> so that was in like when I was in high school, so like the mid 2000s and then Pandora came out and I heard this song from Two Cow Garage um, that just totally blew me away. And again, it was like that moment of discovery with John Mellencamp. I had to find more and I mm. had to find more. Um, there was this funny moment where I guess my sister, we didn't go to college together, had also come across it on Pandora. <laughs> and so it was like November, I was trying to decide like, oh, I should get this album. I'll get it as like a Christmas present to myself or whatever. Um, I took a break from studying to watch The Matrix with some friends. And then I remembered I had a package waiting for me at the college like mailroom. And I go and I open it and it's the Two Cal Garage album. <laughs> with no no or card or anything and i was like holy shit the matrix really is watching me uh, it turns out that my sister was like oh this will be a nice present for rachel and sent it over to me but forgot to tell me that she had <laughs> um yeah and then just all the other bands came from there and then um wanting more people because i feel like there is an overlap between like cowboy mouth um and the people who have been associated with that band over the years mm-hmm. and what we now think of as Americana. And because I wasn't sure how to help people see that connection, I just made my own blog. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And here we are nine years later. That's awesome. because I, I just uh, published the 1600th post on the site. That's amazing. That is uh, crazy you're, 100 and, you're nearly 150 episodes into the, like the show itself or like what, like when you play tracks. Well, the, the, it was a blog for yeah. six or seven years. And then I thought that a podcast would be less time than the blog, <laughs> or at least that I could cover more music. Um, and that's not true. I still have like a two month lag <laughs> between uh, what I find an artist I really like and what I could put them on the, um, the podcast. And Vaughn uh, co-hosted the podcast with me at the beginning. And once I learned the ropes, he, um, bowed out because he had been podcasting for like almost 15 years at that point so he was just ready to do something else but it was really nice of him to uh be there with me for the first year 
Cool. And with like, obviously you kind of seen Americana before Americana was a thing. What do you kind of think of the future of like country, like an old country and that Americana sound going forward? Because it still Mm -hmm. seems to be shifted. And Americana seems to be like the bigger catch-all term that is anyone with a an acoustic guitar basically mm-hmm. and in the uk it's americanas it can go anything from like dylan and lennon-esque to springsteen to you know full pedal steel or basically country music that people are too afraid to call country where do you kind of see it shifting or going at the moment or in the future yeah i think that there have always been a lot of like strains inside americana i think there's like always going to be like the people who come to it from like a punk rock or heavy metal perspective um people who want to be more traditional sort of bluegrass folk you know like one person with a guitar um but something i'm seeing a lot from the artists who uh i really respect and admire is a lot of people are just like getting into jazz especially Mm. like all those uh the people out of tulsa so like the new John Moreland album, basically jazz. Um, John Calvin Abney, who really does a lot to drive his sound. Um, his own album had like a lot of electronic elements to it. And then he also worked with Samantha Crane, who's a colleague of John's, um, on her new album. And that had like a an oboe in it, I think. Uh, and I, Max Lockwood Porter, who just moved back there, I think, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot of those elements on his next album because they all work with John Calvin Abney. Uh, and so he's a very relaxed guy, but his musical influence, but he's like a virtuoso. And so like a lot of his influences can really be heard on all three of the other people's uh, music. So I think at the end of the day, it all comes to jazz. <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> the structure uh, of the songwriting and writing everything in like the key of G uh, I would imagine gets boring to people. Mm. I'm, I'm sure you know after like 15, 20 years of like doing that. So I think, um, and then I think also just frankly, a lot of people got into mushrooms <laughs> and were writing songs about mushrooms for like a good five years. And now everyone's getting into sobriety. So I think there's like the sort of move towards things that are le- a sound that's a lot less rigid. Yeah. But that still has a lot of country music elements. So it's not like. <clears throat> It's not like cosmic country, but it's definitely going to be more like free flowing. Um, and part of me really likes that. And part of me also really likes, I just want to hear like some guys who smoked way too much in high school and like <laughs> singing about whatever's going on with them. Yeah. That's so interesting. And like, obviously with Adobe and writing for these things, you must just get inundated with emails and music and stuff. Is there anything recently that's like kind of jumped out at you? that's like ended up in your inbox and stuff or any music you've come across that's really excited you or broke the mold yeah i think i'm starting to get a little more jaded about it (laughs) so (laughs) um obviously i really like your music uh, because it's sort of like that that more like rock and roll Mm. approach um are you asking about like anything specific that's coming up ahead yeah uh like or any artist that um you're just really excited about yeah uh miko marks um has like this album coming up i haven't had a chance to listen to all of it she is a black woman who had like a record deal in nashville like 20 years ago and didn't go anywhere because she was black and i don't understand like how 
a record label functions like where you would just sign a bunch of people and then decide you don't feel like marketing them mm. but she was just told over and over again we don't know how to market you they wanted her or i think also what happens is that um the labels and the managers will hand people songs we're talking about commercial country music mm. in nashville will like give people music and tell them to go sing it and they don't always want to um and I think with Charlie Pride passing, that I'm sure that was a very big part of his story. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the a lot of people's record deals just stall. And so she went back to the Bay Area, and I think had she had this dream that she was going to make a country soul album, and so she did. And it probably would have been released this year, but I think they're going to wait. They're waiting until early 2021. Oh, awesome. Um, yeah, actually, this newer or new to me record label, Brooklyn Basement Records, mm. uh, has a lot of artists who have really been catching my ear. So she's one of them. Her, the record will not be on that label, but they're doing the press for her. So maybe there was some kind of relationship there. Yeah. But um, that's what I'm thinking of off the top of my head. I guess we'll see. I yeah. think like I'm just feeling so <laughs> flooded with emails. Yeah. Um, but I think just like movies, like I think music seems to have its own sort of cycle in terms of like what's good and what isn't. Yeah. So a lot of the music I get towards the end of the year um, and stuff that gets released in January and February for whatever reason doesn't catch my ear as much as the stuff that gets released later in the year. And maybe it's just like That's seasonal. Mm. <laughs> like I'm frustrated that I'm stuck inside. It's winter, but I'll be more receptive to emotions and feelings in the spring and the summer. <laughs> Yeah. No, that's fair enough. I've never thought about like music being seasonal in a way as well. And I, I, I imagine for you as well, who reviews and listens to it so much that it must just be like an endless tsunami of, you know, records and songs and stuff. So it must be hard to try and break that like cycle to not just be interested in music, but to not scream and end up blowing your computer up to just to get away from it for five minutes. Right. Yeah. I've started to get like, very into jazz specifically for that reason because i don't know anything about it and i don't know what's going on and i don't know what's good and what isn't yeah. i mean obviously elevator music is not no. what you always want to listen to um and like so i've just been immersing myself with that so it's like music that i can find interesting without having to think too hard about it yeah i do that from like a creative perspective and like obviously because I'm a country musician and I do the road country stuff. So I get a lot of country music to listen to. I always do this thing called like a hard reset where I end mm -hmm. up just listening to the complete opposite genres. So it's either like black metal and death metal and just extreme noise. Or it's like, I just put on like Wu-Tang Clan for like a week straight or like public enemy or something just to mm -hmm. try and get so far away from like one guy in a guitar that I'm like, even like, I'll, I'll pick up a guitar and go, I can't even be asked listening to myself. So it's like, I'm just need to like take a break for a bit, but it must be for yourself, just kind of like a relentless thing. But it's cool that you find like jazz as a way to kind of like break the mold and stuff. Yeah. And I think also like my workflow, which is such like a gross term, but that's changed a lot since I started mm. the blog. So I started it as like a kind of um, release from teaching i mm. was a high school history teacher for four years cool um so i started it while i was in grad school and so this was like a thing i could do that wasn't really teaching and i could mm. get my mind off of it um and then teaching itself is really intense 
so to have like a lot of very intense human interaction and then listen to very intense songs and then write about them, I think was just a way to process everything. Um, but I'm not teaching anymore. I have more of a desk job as like mm. basically a guidance counselor. Um, and so the music is just on while I'm working as opposed to like, uh, and I could just listen to hours and hours of music a day. And I didn't do that when I was teaching mm. cause I was in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, cool. So it's become something that's just always on instead of like the break I get to take. Yeah. No, amazing. Well, we're coming up to the hour mark, so I don't want to keep. Oh, sure. Yeah. But um, I've got a few notes and things, and the only thing we've not hit on at the moment <laughs> was I read in an interview you were a fan of the Red Wall books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, what interview? <laughs> um, it was a geek experience one because it was about oh, a cool. comic. I, yeah. I did a bit of a deep dive, but I saw Red Wall, and I'm a huge fucking Red Wall fan. Oh my god! I gotta introduce you to Gabe. <laughs> He's gonna be co-hosting the episode that comes out on Friday. Oh, awesome! Like, yeah. how did you get into those books? A family friend like gave them to me for Christmas. Really? Yeah, and like, I think those books like you don't have to start with any one particular book. So I don't know how or why she picked uh, the three that she gave me. So it was. Um, the Bellmaker, Outcast of Redwall, and I think Salamandastron. And, <laughs> right, that was like peak Redwall. <laughs> and so I picked the Bellmaker because it had the coolest cover. Mm. Oh, you, like <laughs> with the cloak, and it's like he's got like this. Oh. I, I think the British and the, and the American editions are different. So oh, yeah. in the American edition, it was like, it, they were very painterly for a while. So mm. it's like, these mice in a boat and then there's this vision of martin this like mouse in like golden armor uh like floating over their heads yeah. and um at the time i was really into king arthur so i was like oh well this one is wearing armor so i have yeah. to read it i have to start with that one yeah. i don't know why i didn't start with the uh, salamandestron which also had a badger wearing armor on it but like at the end of the day the badgers are the animals i identified with the most and mm. so artema is basically a badger for anyone yeah. who has has read Redwall. Amazing. Like it seemed like every yeah. now and then Redwall pops up on Twitter or something and it's got mm-hmm. this really weird cult thing because like the first book I found was Pearls of Lutra. And I remember That was the best one. Yeah. When I was a kid, yeah. it was in one of those like school magazines where it was like a book fair and I saw the cover on like a little thumbnail. And like I've still got them on my shelves and I put them not in chronological order of when Brian Jakes released them, but I've put it in right. chronological order of Redwall history. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I my plan is um I, they're all still at my parents' house or my dad's house and he wants me to take them. <laughs> so <laughs> and a bunch of them are signed. Uh oh, really? so my plan is to get them over here and then buy all the new ones from the ones I still don't have yeah. and I've gonna try to make myself read all of them. But I think like uh even the good ones are very much written for children. So yeah. it's sort of it's, I've tried to reread them from time to time, but it's kind of hard. Yeah, I haven't read them in years because I'm I, like that's like my kind of fear, and I have this kind of vision. My nephew's four now, mm-hmm. so I want to give him the books when he's like a bit yeah. older, so I can like be like, "Do you like them and stuff?" But I'm so jealous you've got some sign because Brian Jakes, he's actually he was Liverpoolian, so he yeah. lived like near me, and I didn't know this for years, so I kicked myself because at some point when I was a kid. He must have done a book signing near me. Mm-hmm. And I never knew. And I only found out about him living here and like passing when it was like the second to last book, I think he passed. 
mm-hmm. and then they released them posthumously. So like, yeah, like this such a good series. It's like Lord of the Rings, but animals for kids. Um, <laughs> it's got like everyone I talked about has such like a great reaction to when you mentioned Red Wall. Yeah, it's so funny because it's like most of them were like international bestsellers, and a couple of them were trans. I have uh, I have a copy of Red Wall in Japanese, <laughs> like just for fun and um but most people don't know it right like he didn't want it to be turned into movies or video games although the family has given this one studio permission to make a video game um because he wanted kids to like read and imagine but if he had made like you know if we look at harry potter Mm. you know what i mean yeah, because like ma- like the first thing that jumps to mind is like Mouse Guard, like the um, mm-hmm. comic that came yeah, out. Yeah, like, exactly. That was heavily. It inspired. is Redwall. Yeah. yeah, but like, do you, did you ever watch the cartoon? The Redwall cartoon? Oh yeah. 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 So it's just Jim like, Curry. <laughs> yeah, if they'd have just gone forward with that book, what could have been for like that book series? But I saw that in an article, and I was like, I have to mention that to you before yeah. this podcast ends because it's it's always good to me, like a fellow fan of Redwall yeah it's like a secret society but i feel like it really like shaped the way i view the world Mm -hmm. and like how i like walk through it and i was gonna like after the day i was gonna like write him a letter after i graduated from college to like tell him all this and then he died like Mm -hmm. uh in may of 2011 i think yeah um it was like my dog and then my grandma and then him like all within a few weeks and i was like okay i get it i'm an adult now (laughs) oh it was rough yeah but it's yeah. yeah it's such a shame and like because um on my drive into work there's the liverpool library and it's just got a wall of names and brian jakes is like oh, pretty cool. like prominent so there's like i see clive barker towards the top and like brian jakes i always look at it and i'm like fuck yes brian jakes yeah <laughs> i don't know it, i'd be interested to reread them i feel like there's a lot of like weird racial politics <laughs> Yeah. the world that don't translate very well probably anymore. like that's the thing i think that's kind of what's been stopping me is do they hold up and then am i going to find all these things where you realize that the moles were actually like a metaphor for something horrific he didn't see it that way and no, like so many people talked yeah. to him about it but you know they're still the subconscious yeah yeah well <laughs> yeah. we're past an hour and Thank yeah. you so much for him. No, thank you for your time. Thanks no, for having me. It's been a genuine pleasure to chat to you. And obviously I've been yeah. wanting to get you on for a while. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks for being patient about all the scheduling and stuff. No, thank you so much for making And there we have it, guys. That is episode 21 of Into the Van, Into the Bag. Please go check out Adobe and Teardrops, Rachel's comic Artima. And, you know, one of the things that Rachel does so well and it's so ingrained into her personality is she just stands for what she believes in in such an unapologetic way that you can't help but respect that drive and that commitment and being able to platform artists that she does on adobe and teardrops and who she writes about for no depression or whoever and it's such an amazing thing to get to watch as a fan is you get to find all these artists and see this unique perspective and attitude of just being again unapologetically who you are and standing for what you believe in which i think especially 
in country music you don't see a lot of you see a lot of people bow to what is the mainstream or what the trends are and that's why people like rachel are so vital to this so please go check out her work go listen to adobe and teardrops and yeah keep supporting independent music that you love and stand up for what you believe in as well um yeah until next time guys go listen to the next life go check out adobe and teardrops go listen to whoever you want as long as it's rogue um, and stay safe and have fun and i hope you enjoyed your christmas break and till next time guys peace